Good morning, church. Today is Bogo Sunday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're going through the mental list. You have Good Friday, you have Lent leading up to it, you have Easter, uh, Pentecost, Ascension. I don't remember Bogo on the calendar. Buy one, get one. You're familiar with the shopping terminology? You get two sermons this morning. <laughs> and some, yeah, some of you though are thinking, well, I didn't pay for the first one. I don't really want the second. But here's the thing. The first one is vintage. And my kids tell me that the vintage stuff is more valuable than the current trendy stuff. And that's absolutely the case this morning. I want you to hear the first Christian sermon ever preached. It was preached on Pentecost morning. You remember we've been uh, journeying our way through the book of Acts. Last week we looked at the opening verses of Acts chapter 2, the descent of the Holy Spirit, that, that morning that marked the reinvigorated dream for God's people and the launching of the church into the world. And um, shortly after that experience, the onlooking crowds, where they're watching this, uh, this dramatic spectacle, Spectacle. People just radiating with joy and speaking in the tongue of every, um, every listener in the crowd. All that myriad variety of different languages. And they ask the same question. What does it all mean? What does this mean? And it's Peter. Fallible, mighty, tempestuous Peter. And I don't know whether he's the one who stands up automatically or the rest of the apostles say, you know, Peter, you've always been the one out front. You're going to be out front today. I think Jesus knew it about Peter. And, and that's why he received a special commission towards the end of the Gospels. But whatever the reason, it's Peter who speaks. And he delivers the first Christian sermon. And I want you to hear it. And I want you to hear it in its entirety. It's not that long. In fact, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can follow along with me. Why do people smile every time I say, I hope that you do? <laughs> We've been saying it for two years. Uh, listen, we have lots of Bibles here. If you don't have one, we'll give you one. Then you can bring it next week. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews. And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. After all, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, 
wonders, signs, these things which God did among you through Him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he's buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Join me as we pray. God, we weren't there that day. But through the gift of Scripture, through your Holy Word, you invite us to become part of the crowd and we listen in and and we hear the powerful words of that first Christian message spoken. We know as we read through the pages of Acts that, that Your Word was accompanied by the work of Your Spirit. And we pray for the same this morning. That Your Spirit would move freely in the lives and, and move freely in the choices of those in this room. God, we pray that the Spirit would do the work it has always been given to do. To encourage to nudge, to prompt, to challenge, to change. God, that they would, you would take what is hard in our life and, and make it malleable. God, that You would take us and shape us and mold us into Your image. Give us ears to hear what You'd say to each of us this morning. We 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted you to hear the whole sermon, but we're going to focus just on the last four verses, if that's okay, verses 36 through 39. What you have at the end of the sermon is kind of a, a brief summary, a compendium, if you would like, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is a brief little description of how you become Christian. And, and I'm going to suggest that one of the ways of wrestling with it is by noticing four things about what's in the compendium, about Christ following. And they're there in your order of service if you want to look at the notes page on the back. But the four that we're going to look at are these, mind and grace, heart and life. There you have it. In verse 36, we learned about mind and about grace. In verse 37, you learn about heart. In verses 38 and 39, we'll learn about life. That sound all right? You've already listened to one whole sermon. You're doing fantastic. First of all, mind. Verse 36. Here's the summary, the bottom line. Therefore, Peter says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's his thesis statement. It's a, it's a remarkable statement. Now keep in mind this. Peter is speaking here in Jerusalem. He's speaking to a crowd that, not surprisingly, are, are primarily, maybe almost exclusively Jewish. Uh, Jerusalem had swelled in number to two or three times its normal population. That happened several times a year during their festivals. This was the festival of Pentecost, and Jews had come from all over the world to recognize the holy day. But wherever they come from, they shared that Jewish identity. And part of the Jewish identity, a rich part of it, was their belief that God had spoken uniquely in the pages of what you might call the Old Testament, what they recognized as the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the writings, the Ketubim, and the prophets. And here's what he does. He takes what they recognize as the most holy voice of God, and he uses it to build a reasoned argument about how their own belief system, how their own scriptures point to Jesus. Look what David says in Psalm 16. This is in Peter's sermon. He directs their attention to that psalm that they would have known. They, they sing it regularly at their gatherings. And he says, listen, David couldn't just be referring to himself. Look again at Psalm 110. When David is king, and he's talking about the Lord speaking to my Lord. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about himself. He was already on the throne, and, and yet this is something greater. What human being could he possibly be talking about? What Peter is trying to do is to make a sustained, reasoned argument based on what they already know to be true. One that points in the direction of Jesus. Let all Israel be assured of this that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Not only is he going to argue from Scripture, he's also going to argue from, from the evidence that they had in front of them. For weeks, Jesus had been popping up all over the place. Not just in closed rooms, uh, not just to a few, but to hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds of people had seen them. He's appealing to the mind. He's building a persuasive argument. And this is important, I think, because he doesn't come into their lives and say, listen, you got it all wrong. He says, you know what? 
there's so much truth in what you already have. And if all truth is God's truth, if there's a little bit of Jesus in whatever is true, then I want you to see how what's true in your own Scriptures has a way of pointing towards Jesus. I want you to see how what's true in your own experience, the evidence, the witness of your friends and the residents of Jerusalem, how it's true and how it points to Jesus. That's a, I think that's a key, a key principle for how the church is effective in its witness. Instead of browbeating people into submission, saying, you've got it wrong, how much more effective is it to say, there's truth in your world. And look how that truth points to Jesus. One of the most effective principles in mission that I'm aware of, it's a long-standing principle, is this idea that God has placed in every culture, in every nation, in every group or gathering or community, the key that is necessary to unlock that group for the gospel. That there is some truth there that we can latch onto and use and point it to Jesus. And we've seen it happen again and again and again. We have multiple examples in the Bible. Here's one. Paul also does the same thing when he's working with non-Jewish people. He's in Rome. He's in the center of the Roman philosophical courtyard in the Areopagus. He's surrounded by all these statues, a depiction of all the Roman gods. The, the Romans were very careful, very organized, very thoughtful. They made sure that there was a depiction of each of the gods. And they were so careful that they even covered the possibility of omission. So they had one statue that was designated for the, do you remember, the unknown God, in case we missed one. We don't want to miss one. Get him angry at us. Now Paul doesn't wander in the courtyards and say, blasphemy, blasphemy, heinous, despicable. No, he says, listen, I want to talk to you about the truth of what I see here. You already recognize the unknown. Let me tell you about the unknown God. And let me tell you how he reigns supreme over everything else here that's fashioned only by human hands, made out of stone and wood. You see how, how really powerful it can be to take what truth God has already placed in the world and use it to point towards Jesus. Instead of just browbeating people, find something that they know. Christianity appeals to the mind. It makes you think. It, it tells you to think. It doesn't say you just have to feel it. It says that it, it, it needs to make sense here and here. Christianity comes to the mind. Peter doesn't say, listen, you want to know how to be happy? Here it is. Here's the secret to being happy. No, he says there's something that's happened in history. And because it's happened, we need to deal with it. And there are things within your own system of beliefs that are true that point to what's happened. Christianity appeals to the mind in that way. Any version of Christianity that doesn't appeal to the mind isn't true Christianity. Any version of Christianity that would reduce it all to an emotional experience that be, can be contrived or manipulated, that's, that's not real Christianity. Here's the second thing. Let all Israel... Know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. The second thing embedded in that statement is, is best summed up in, in the word that you've sung already this morning. 
the word that is probably more associated with the gospel than any other word, the word grace. Christianity is about grace. Now you know that and you've heard that how many thousands upon thousands of times. But what does it mean? I mean, imagine you're in the crowds there and you're asking, what does it all mean? Christianity is about grace. Doesn't it mean at least this? That, that salvation is not about the achievement of human beings. Salvation is the grand achievement of God. Christianity without grace at the center, whatever else it is, is not God's good news. Whenever grace has been removed from the center of the gospel, the kind of Christianity that has been foisted into the world has done more damage than good. And you could trace a destructive pathway through history where the church has lost hold on grace at the heart of the gospel. So you have here verse 36, where Peter looks back, everything that he said. One of the most striking things about Peter's sermon, and we're going to see it again and again in the book of Acts, is the way that he and other early Christian preachers go back to what's already known in history and in the scriptures and show people how it all points to Jesus. So let me give you the big word for this. The word is Christocentric. Say that with me. Christocentric. Say it at lunch. Christocentric. And see if the person you're lunching with isn't so impressed that they'll pick up the check. Christocentric means everything is orbited around Christ. Christ is at the center and it points to him. The key idea is this, that that when the New Testament authors wrote, when the New Testament preachers preached, they understood somehow that, that everything that God had been doing in the world all pointed to that one moment. Let me give you a bunch of examples. You have them in your, in your notes if you'd like. But they were really fond of showing how, how the great themes and, and the great uh, characters in the life of, uh, of God's people were always bettered by Jesus. So you know the story of Adam. And the decision that he had to make. And when tested in the Garden of Eden, he comes up short. Paul calls Jesus the greater Adam. The second Adam. When he's tested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't fall up short. Because people believe in him. They inherit the, the legacy of his good choice. Whereas in the past they had been inflicted or infected by the legacy of the first Adam's poor choice. He is the... The second Adam. He is the greater Adam. Here's another example. Peter says Jesus is the true and better David. Now think about David for a minute. What's the most famous episode in the life of David? Probably Bathsheba. (laughs) Yeah, we're an inquirer generation. That's the yeah. That is a famous one. Second most famous. The most famous one. The one. The one that we teach in Sunday school before we teach Bathsheba is Goliath. Right. Yeah, so he stands there on the field of battle and he slays this giant of a man. And somehow through that victory, the victory is imputed or given to the entire nation. It's not just one man beats another man. As a result of that conflict and that victory, the nation of Israel defeats the Philistines. They tuck tail, get back on their boats and they sail away. Jesus is depicted as the true and greater David. He doesn't just kill a giant of a man. 
He kills the giants of sin and death themselves. And he doesn't do it just at the risk of his life. David was risking his life. He does it at the cost of his life. He gives up his life for that. And through that victory, though none of us ever raised a hand, the victory is credited to us. He is the heir of the throne of David. He is the greater king. Jesus himself said he was the better Jonah. Remember that story of Jonah? Gets on a boat, starts sailing, pointed entirely the wrong direction. This agitates God more than just a little bit. And so God sends a not-too-friendly reminder in the form of a violent storm. Now, Jonah's not alone on the boat, and the others on the boat have a sense that it's his fault. And the solution is easily formulated. Let's get him off the boat. And so they, they throw him into the sea of God's anger, and the storm subsides. And you know the outcome of the story, many of you. Jonah doesn't die in that, but he is repositioned by God in uh, a, a very sort of uh, disgusting way, if you can think about it. I mean, how many people have been sent out of the mission field in the carcass of a fish? But that was the case for him. But Jesus says he's the greater Jonah. And what he's getting at is that he's actually going to do what Jonah did, but he's going to do it cosmically. He's going to go into the sea of divine wrath and justice in order to save those who are drowning in the storm. Paul says Jesus is like the rock of Moses. What's that about? Go back to the story of Moses leading his people through the desert. It really was a desert. It was dry. It was barren. There was no food. And most importantly, there was no water. And so they're starving and they're dying of thirst. And God leads them to this place in the middle of the desert. And he instructs Moses who takes out his staff and he strikes the rock. And out of the rock comes water, pure, fresh, cool, reviving. Jesus is the rock of Moses, the real rock, struck with the rod of God's justice, and yet out of that comes the water of life. You remember John the Baptist on the day of Jesus' baptism, looks to his cousin Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now people knew that expression, right? That was the central story of the Jewish faith, the Passover story. Once a year, you went out and you selected a lamb, perfect, without blemish. And after sacrificing the lamb, you used the blood and you painted it on the lentils and the doorposts. And then the, the angel of death would pass over the home without slaying any of those who dwell within. That was the story, reenacted every year at Passover. Behold the Lamb of God, slain ultimately, the ultimate innocent, the ultimate sacrifice without blemish so that death no longer would cast a dark pale over the sea of God's people. Here's the last one. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the true and better priest. He is the great high priest. Over and over again, Christian preachers in the Bible and since will, will read this stuff and say, it all points to Him. The word for it again is Christocentric. Christocentric. If all truth is God's truth, and there's a little bit of Jesus in that truth, learn to see in the witness of God, both in the Bible and in your life, in history and in the present, learn to see the signs that point.
point is activity in Jesus. That's what it means to be Christocentric. Why is it? And why is that important? Why does that sound the note of grace? The, the Bible has within it, doesn't it? It seems like lots of things about how we ought to behave, what we ought to do, the, the do's and don'ts, the, the commands of the Bible. Lots of good advice about how you can live, but you can miss the forest of what the Bible is about by focusing on any one of those trees. You can read about all of those things and think that the Bible is basically about what we, ought, what we ought to do in order to get God to accept us, in order to get God to, to listen and answer our prayers. Would it be shocking to say that this book is not only authored by God, but is primarily about God? That it isn't really about you or me? And here's why that's really good news. After centuries and centuries of trying, I think we've pretty much figured out that human beings are fatally flawed. I mean, yes, there's nobility in us. Yes, there's dignity. But there's also indignity. And there's selfishness. And there's, there's violence. And, and there's hatred. And listen, we've been at this for thousands of years. And, and some things are getting better. But not everything. And not really us. Nobody is righteous enough for a holy God. But here's the news that brings grace. The Bible isn't primarily about you. It's not about what you have to do or not do in order to be saved. It's about what He's already done to save you. Christian preachers know and Christian readers read the Bible knowing that it's always first about grace. Not because of what you've done, but because of what He's done. And once you get that idea of grace in your head, you don't just read the Bible as what you have to do, the minimum entry requirements for getting into heaven. It's about grace. Last night I was at a concert uh, that was put on by Canadian Baptist Ministries. Performing at the concert was a, a beautiful, gifted First Nations leader named Cheryl Bear. And... Uh, well, if you want to learn about grace, hear that message spoken through the lips of somebody who represents a people who have known nothing but persecution and suffering now for centuries. James, you were there last night. Powerful testimony that she gives. You remember at one course in the evening, she and the, the gentleman she was sharing the, uh, sharing the stage with reached back into history and and found a quote from a man I'd never heard of before. He was, a, he was a Russian church leader. His name was Father John of Kronstadt. And this is what they said. And I, I wrote the words down. I thought they were so powerful. You need to hear them. He said, you lay your life in the fire of God's love so that you can become by grace what God is by nature. Anything else is beneath your dignity. Hear that again. You lay yourself in the fire of God's love so that you become by grace what God is by nature and anything else is beneath your dignity. Here's the image. 
I expect some of you, maybe most of you, have been in a blacksmith shop at some time. Maybe those of you who grew up around here that trip to Black Creek Pioneer Village. You've seen how a blacksmith will take a piece of hardened metal, usually iron, and will work it in the fires until it becomes malleable. They will stoke that fire and fan it with, uh, uh, with air until it becomes white hot. And here's what happens to the metal that's in there. It takes on the attributes of the fire. As that fire turns to blazing white, so the metal, the longer it's in there, turns white hot. As that fire radiates with intense heat, so the metal comes to bear that heat. If you take it out, it, the heat is so, it's so hot, you can't even get close to it. As that fire moves and dances with the life almost its own, it, it, it's shaping and reshaping itself. So the metal, once rock hard, becomes malleable, becomes changeable. The iron takes on the characteristics of the fire. That's what a blacksmith does. And when you take it out, you can see the white, the heat. You can experience the malleability, the changeability of the metal. But if you leave it out, the longer it stays out, the more those characteristics disappear. The gift of grace is this, that you become, through the love of God, you become what He is by nature because of what He does in your life. And anything else, Father John said, is beneath your dignity. Here's the third thing, and we'll move with a little bit more speed here. You don't become a Christian just by changing your mind about some things, even momentous things, even things like the concept of grace. You have to be cut to the heart. Listen to verse 37. When people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Cut to the heart. And that means two things. First of all, in general, it says that you don't really decide one day that you're going to become a Christ follower. You don't take up Christianity like some sort of self-improvement program. You don't just decide, hey, today might be a good day to try that thing, Christianity. At least I don't think that's the way most people get into it, is it? It's not a hobby. It's not an avocation. It's not a program. You don't take it up. Christianity takes you up. God takes you up. You become a Christian when you sense that there is something greater that takes hold of you. It sweeps you up. There's a power that comes. That term, cut to the heart, means literally stabbed or pierced. You know what it's talking about? Earlier on, Peter gets at this. He says, I want you to know that you put him to death. With wicked hands, you put him to death. You pierced him. You stabbed him. And when they heard this, they were, that same expression, cut to the heart. Now remember again, those crowds there on Pentecost morning, Jerusalem swelling again to two or three times its normal size, that's not the same crowds that were there eight weeks ago. Chances are most of them weren't there in that crowd that cried out, crucify him, take him away, execute him. They didn't feel complicit in what happened to Jesus. Nevertheless, when, G when Peter speaks those words, you know that you put him to death with, with wicked hands. It says they were cut to the heart. Here's the idea. 
And I think this is the essence of how you become a Christian. It happens when your sin becomes personal and not abstract. When it's not a theoretical concept that you wrestle with, but a very personal conviction that you have wounded or agonized somebody that loves you deeply and incredibly. The great example is Peter himself, right? Remember that moment in Peter's life, a dire moment? Trials going on. Jesus is being set up, a mock trial. Everything is stacked against him. He's about to be executed. Peter's out there in the courtyards. A group of people gathered around him. Hey, we saw you, Pete. You're one of his. No, no I'm not. No, Pete, I'm sure that you're hanging. No, 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 no. Don't know him. Don't know anything about him. Three times they asked him, and he denied ever having any knowledge or acquaintance with Jesus. Now listen, he was a Jewish man. He knew about the weight of the commandments. One of the big ten. Ten commandments. Thou shalt not lie. And there he was. So no doubt he feels guilty. He'd broken the rules. No doubt he feels some shame and he, sl he slinks away into the darkness. But there in the darkness, according to Luke 22, at one point in the night when Jesus is being hurriedly whisked from one of those mock trials to the next one, he locks eyes with Peter. And in that moment, the abstract idea of disobedience to the law turns into a very personal sense of having betrayed the one who he loved. And Scripture says he was cut to the heart. That moment, it became real. And you might want to argue that that's the moment when his real Christian life began. Here's the difference. It's one thing to know that you've broken the rules. And there's guilt in that. It's something quite different to know that you've broken his heart. You've broken the heart of the one to whom you, you owe everything. If you, see, if you see God primarily as a lawgiver, I've broken the rules and now God is out to get me and you're looking over your shoulder all the time, then, then the God that you envision will no doubt make you feel bad. You'll be ashamed. You'll feel browbeaten. But I don't know that that's going to change your life. It's sort of like beating at somebody from the outside bringing pressure on your will to comply. But when you realize that it's not so much that you've broken the law, but you've broken the heart of the one who's given you everything, that's a change that happens from the inside. The Bible is not so much a book of rules as, as it is a story. A story of, of how God made you for Himself made you for a relationship with Him. And how despite the fact that we turned on Him and we still do it, despite the fact that it breaks our heart, it breaks His heart, He, he set aside the glory that, that was just who He was, stepped into our world, goes to the cross at infinite cost. And when you realize that what kept Him on the cross wasn't Roman centurions and guards and nails. He could have called a legion of angels. What kept him on the cross is that somehow he saw the people that he'd made and, and made a decision that there was nothing that would allow him to stop loving you. When that settles in down deep, it becomes personal. You realize, that was for me. 
and when you realize that I've broken his heart, that's when it becomes personal. And it doesn't just beat down against your will, it begins to melt your heart. And that's when change happens. That leads us then to the last part. I'll go through this one really quickly. The crowds say in the midst of all this, what should we do? What should we do? Verses 38 and 39, Peter tells them a series of four things. First, he says, repent and receive forgiveness. That's freedom. Receive freedom. Second, be baptized. Find a new community. Come into the church, a new family, brothers and sisters. Third, receive this new power, the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. The power to make those renovations. While you're burning white hot, while you're malleable in your life, allow God to make those changes. See that your heart has actually been melted rather than just feeling guilty because of what's coming at you from the outside. You're feeling melted on the inside and you're ready to change. You can do it because you have a freedom that you didn't have before. You repent, you find new freedom, a new family, new power. And lastly, he says, you can read it there, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. You know what he's talking about there? Really important. Really important. He's speaking to the Jews. Again, he says, look, when you become a Christian, you're going to realize something. That the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people, the rest of the world, those who you called far off, the promise isn't just for you, it's for them. It's for them, it's for all people. People that you were taught all your life were unclean. People that you saw as enemies. These are the dogs of the world. They're going to become your brothers and sisters and you're going to have to deal with it. The Gospel is going to change you. It's going to humble you. It's going to break down the walls of prejudice. It's going to make you more open to the world. Your whole life is going to be renovated. That's why the evidence of the Gospel is never just changed lives. It's always going to be changed communities. Changed nations. Where the walls that separate us go down. And boy, in a generation... In a year when we have seen walls go up all over the place, how much the world needs the Gospel. That has to be one of the true tests of God's will and true religion. Does it bring the walls up or does it take them down? This week I was reading again a story that I know I've read before. Some of you have read it too. It's, it's about a, a British cleric, an Anglican priest, living in the 18th century in, in Bristol, England. He had one of those cut-to-the-heart experiences, and, and he really wanted to be able to speak to people in an honest way, in, a, in an authentic way about, about how God was changing lives. But he looked out at a congregation that was just emaciated. The churches were empty in those days. They would gather in all of their rigidity and formality and look at buildings filled with empty pews. So maybe not unlike a bunch of churches these days in Europe and Canada and the U.S. And George Whitfield decided, and this was rather controversial and certainly untested at the time, said, why don't I just go outside? I mean, whoever said that the only place that you could speak about this was inside our church buildings? And so this is what he does. He goes to the outskirts of Bristol to a region called Kingswood. This is where the coal mines were. The colliers, the people who worked the mines, they had an average life expectancy of less than 40 years. 
They were afflicted with black lung and, and terrible disease. They lived miserable lives. They were considered pariahs in society. They were dirty and they were unclean. And there were clearly there were walls. How amazed they must have been one evening when they came up out of the darkness of the mines and there standing in the middle of the, uh, in the, middle of the field was George Whitfield standing on a small podium clad in all of his clerical regalia. And back then that meant one of those dust-covered wigs. An Oxford-educated scholar had moved from the city to the coal mines because he had something important he wanted to talk to them about. Something that, that he was desperate for them to hear. He cared enough to go all that way into their world. And he preached a sermon. And he preached a very similar sermon day after day after day in that place. And there were witnesses. This was a history-making moment for the church and for Europe. In history, you'll, you'll read it titled The Great Awakening. It changed the course of history, not just the church, of history itself in Europe for centuries to come. The witnesses to that event said that what was most interesting is that when the colliers were listening, don't forget their faces are stained black with coal dust, when they were listening, suddenly these little white splotches began to appear on their cheeks. said it almost looked like diamonds shining in the sun. Eyewitnesses realized that it was tears creating these little white gutters down their faces. They were cut to the heart. Listen, we all have different temperaments. I don't cry as much as some people I know, especially some I know through marriage. These were hardened men. The gutters on their cheeks were a sign of God at work in their hearts. And that's just how it happens. Maybe it needs to happen for some of you. And if it does, would you allow me the privilege of praying with you now? In fact, for, for all of us, let me invite you to bow your head. Let's receive the work that God has been doing through His Spirit. Father, we want to be Christians not just in name, but in deed, in our lives. Lord, make this congregation a place where people can hear the Gospel and be cut to the heart. Where they can receive freedom. Instead of guilt and shame that just continually pushes us down and makes us feel bad about ourselves. The freedom and grace that comes as we move into, into a new realm of relationship with You. Lord, we want this to be a place where people can hear that Gospel and where we ourselves can take that Gospel deeper and deeper into our lives. Experience new power, new community, and new freedom. God, help us to do that right now. And for those who may be here, who've had that experience of, of little gutters running down their cheek, who've been cut to the heart, we want to be the first 
to be alongside them and join them in saying, God, thank you for all that you've done. Come into my life as Lord and Christ. Help us to do that right now. We pray it in Jesus' name.